Stay at home and protect lives. That's the clear warning from the health secretary, Matt Hancock, who says it's not a request, but an instruction. I folks, quick update for me on the campaign against coronavirus. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. Finding faster ways to test people who may have the virus. Researchers at Oxford are reporting new data from their experimental vaccine today, and there's word it could provide double protection from the virus. Hello and welcome to Corona Chronicles, SNS Online's spin-off show that continues to touch base with a wide variety of people from all walks of life to talk about how the current situation is impacting them both professionally and personally, as well as offering a cup full of cheer, some top tips, up-to-date stats, and most importantly, to touch virtual base with a cheery hello. And without the need for hand sanitizer, I'm Nick Randall. The UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been under fire for suggesting that care homes could have done more to reduce deaths during the pandemic, also claiming that too many in the sector didn't really follow the procedures. Amongst the many people who criticised his words was Nadra Ahmed, OBE, chair of the National Care Association, who joins me now. Nadra, welcome to the programme. I'm assuming Boris's comments were not welcomed. And although I completely appreciate the incredible efforts care homes have put in to look after their residents over the last few months, including staff living in during the pandemic, which is amazing, would we not have expected PPE to be readily available early on due to yearly outbreaks of influenza, etc., which the elderly are particularly prone to, as well as the fact that each paying guest could essentially self-isolate and be shielded in their own rooms. Well, I think the way you paint the picture is lovely. Um, and um, uh, uh, and I only wish all of it or was was true. Um, in With reference to the PPE, we do um, have PPE and we have enough stock to um, take us through a few weeks because we don't stockpile. But of course, the, the problem with the PPE was not um, that we didn't have some, and also we only use things like aprons and gloves. Mm. With this pandemic, we needed masks as well. So masks is not something that a, a care provider would need or use or indeed buy. Okay. Um, and so therefore, you know, that that was the first thing that, that kind of really hit the sector. Secondly, suppliers who would normally supply us on a six-week cycle or a monthly cycle with the aprons and, and, and gloves started to tell us they could not supply us because um, all the PPE had been requisitioned. It had all been requisitioned for the NHS and therefore they could no longer supply the care providers. So the people I represent is the small to medium-sized providers and and they don't buy huge bulks, you know. Um, And so it was, um, I guess, business decisions by the suppliers um, that that they would no longer supply us. So that was that that was the the, the reality on the ground from the very start. Uh, and actually, yes, we can self-isolate people. We can isolate people in their own rooms. Um, but of course, when you've got we've got client groups uh, with dementia or challenging behaviour, that becomes a bit more difficult because the whole purpose of them being in care settings is to be safely able to wander. Um, and so you can't then tell them to sit um, and expect them to do what you tell them because they're cognitively not able to understand why they wouldn't be able to wander this service that they've been able to 
walk around um, in, uh, you know, in circles or go out or talk to people or sit in lounges. So all of those things have to be taken into consideration. Mm. I, I, I just was going to say, I mean, I, I certainly, I, of course, I completely get what you're saying. But, but I would have thought that when it's people with dementia who really don't know better, um, if it's a matter of life or death, then um, aren't there some sort of ways that uh, their movements could be far more restricted? Well, I think they were. We tried to restrict them quite quickly in a lot of care homes where there were outbreaks, where, you know, people had come back out of hospitals uh, and there were outbreaks. Mm. They started to zone off their care homes into the green zones and the red zones. And, you know, this is COVID zone. And it depends on, uh, you know, every care home is different. Not all of them are purpose built. And providers were quite swift in responding to what they needed because they were also, importantly, safeguarding their staff because it meant making sure they had enough staff to be um, looking after people in the different zones and you have to bear in mind that that, that the peak of all of this we had 30% of our staff self-isolating. Of course yes yes um, and also the other issue that's been thrown up is uh, untested people who were not COVID free being released early from hospital then being taken back to care homes infecting others were you sort of in a position where it was very difficult to avoid that? Well, I think it was really challenging for the care providers because the messages at the very early, you know, at the outset of all this was that care homes needn't worry. Uh, and of course, there are documents that show that there was, you know, uh, guidance that said, you know, people can be, we need to get the NHS freed up and people who are not going back home can be go can go into care homes. They don't need to be tested. They just need to be discharged. Um, and so there was this chaotic moment of just let's let's make sure the safe, uh, you know, safeguard the uh, the NHS. Um, and and so if people did have beds and and. I think very early on, people were saying to us, well, we've got to make sure the NHS has capacity. So, of course, we'll take people um, uh, because we were being reassured that that they weren't um, uh, they were COVID free. They would they were, um, uh, you know, fit for discharge is the terminology that usually gets used. Mm. We were telling our membership that you mustn't take anybody until you've got a. Uh, a swab that um, uh, tells you that this person I I is negative. Um, but of course, we also have to remember that you can get a negative swab. And at that time, you know, it wasn't testing wasn't as easily available uh, or as freely available. Sure. Indeed, still, there are issues. But, you know, at that time, it was even worse. The, the, the swab is taken on a day, the results coming back three or four days later, you don't know if that person's been in the hospital waiting for that swab and whether they've contracted it since. Mm. You know, it was it there, there just wasn't the thought put in to see how we could clearly safeguard the care homes. I mean, do you think it was a matter of uh, the fact that this was so unprecedented and uh, the right instructions really weren't available so early on because we're so much more uh, aware of, uh, of, of how to safeguard people now? Absolutely. I mean, I think I think it is unprecedented. We weren't uh, we weren't ready for it, despite the early messages that you know uh, we were ready for it as as a country. We weren't ready for it, and I think there have been um, uh, admissions now that you know we were all learning. Everybody was learning. Mm. So guidance that was put out earlier, you know, we we had. I think we were on about I don't know sixth or seventh iteration of um, uh, the use of PPE and all of that kind of stuff. There was so much that was just not 
um, confidently being filtered into the sector. Yeah. Um, but I think that was true of the whole country. It wasn't just the social care sector. It was, you know, the messaging was quite challenging. And I absolutely understand that that everybody was trying to do the best that they could. Mm. I just think we as a sector were abandoned. We weren't thought about enough. There, there wasn't a plan for social care in the event of a pandemic. Um, there was obviously a plan you know, that had evolved about what would happen to the NHS and that was about just safeguarding it and then building more capacity and the Nightingale hospitals were, you know, and money was never going to be an option. But within social care, when you think we had 122,000 vacancies at the end of last year uh, in our workforce um, and then that the funding of social care, uh, we were being told, was anywhere between three and four billion black hole none of that had been addressed so we went headlong into a pandemic with no recognition of the fact that the sector was in this very fragile state mm. although lots of statements around it um and so we then thrust this sector into the midst of something with very little support. I mean, would you think it's fair to say that social care is in effect being asked to become part of the NHS, but simply without the same resources and scale? Because obviously you're separate to the NHS now. Absolutely. We've been separate for years. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, you know, the, it, the, we are independent care providers and even the um, uh, local authorities, you know, the vast majority of them don't have their own services anymore because they were just far too expensive to run. Mm. Um, and, and so they sold them off into into trusts and state, you know, uh, that's where we are. So, yes, we are separate. Mm. And there's been a huge amount of discussion around integration um, and, and this seamless service between health and social care where the individual you know takes the plan with them whether they're in a hospital setting or in a care setting we've talked about all of this but none of it's actually happened and i yeah. think that's the challenge we face because what we need is a is a service that recognizes that, that a person who leaves hospital with with assessed care needs uh, and is funded with that uh, in, uh, in, under the NHS should then be funded similarly in the social care sector yeah. because the needs haven't changed. The conditions will remain the same. But for some reason, we think it's OK not to fund that condition anymore. We think it's the responsibility of the care provider to, 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 do, um, uh, to pick it up. And I think that's where it's gone a little bit. Uh, you, you know, haywire, mm. it's got, you know, it's not been properly thought through. And of course, the will to, to, to change it is, is mentioned on the steps of 10 Downing Street with every prime minister that comes into force. But for some reason, nobody wants to tackle the issue because it's thorny and it involves money. So, Care homes are not part of the NHS now, but a business. Now, with any business model, the end goal, obviously, as well as to look after the uh, the quality of life and the rest of it, is to presumably make a profit, which potentially creates a massive imbalance in the quality of care and resources around the country. I mean, I'm just quoting here and again, playing devil's advocate from Twitter. Uh, this is somebody who's written, most care homes are private and charge a fortune every week. It was their responsibility to look after the welfare of their paying clients. But I mean, that's just uh, <laughs> probably a troll on Twitter. But just to give examples of other countries in Hong Kong, there have been no coronavirus deaths in care homes as well as no infections. Germany had one quarter deaths in uh, care homes. Um, is it more a matter of the UK government not offering the same support? And is Boris essentially deflecting the blame on you? 
Absolutely, and I, and I think I, you know I, I need to address the, uh, the 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 issue that's always um, thrown at us about people charging huge amounts of money, sure. and uh, it was up to us. Well, of course, it's our responsibility to have PPE, but if you can't get hold of it because it's been requisitioned for the NHS, what do you do? Mm. So that's that's the first question. But if we go back to the root of the question. It's really important to understand that 84% of the market is small to medium-sized providers. So these are people who are sole owners and they're running that those businesses. If you, if, you know, we've got to, they are SMEs, they're small to medium-sized enterprises. Yeah. The, the people who charge the amounts that you hear about over the, over the 1,000, 1,400, you know, 2,000, whatever it might be that we hear – are more of a corporate sector. Right. That is private equity money that comes in. They're, they're different models of business. And they, you know, so so we can't comment on that. That's a whole different industry to the one that I'm talking about. Sure. The sector's the same. The industry's different. Mm. This is, this is, you know, really important. It's the same as, as somebody running a, 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 a small sort of um, uh, corner shop, grocery corner shop, uh, and comparing it to what Tesco's does or whatever it might be. So I think we, we've got to be really careful that we're talking the se- about the same thing. I understand. Yeah. Now, now for for my providers who are the SMEs, what they get for a week's worth ranges from four hundred and thirty-eight pounds a week to an average of £550 per week to look after people for 24 hours a day, meeting all their care needs, meeting all the legislative requirements that we're required to to meet, 24 hours with high levels of dementia, and we deliver end-of-life care. And we refer to it being very akin to a hospital setting now. So, So we've got a totally different um, uh, picture that we need to be very clear about. I was watching a Newsnight report about a care home there in Brighton. A manager there was saying that they simply had no experience for dealing with the more severe cases, but all were actively discouraged from going to hospital. And also uh, they were suspicious of a new form being rolled out, which said instead of do not resuscitate, being replaced with a respect form. Can you comment on that? Oh, I mean, I think it was appalling because very, um, you know, sort of early on and mid, just before we started the peaks, we, we started to get reports of people being told that, that um, doctors were doing blanket DNRs, uh, we, uh, you know, do not resuscitate. We were also being told that um, ambulances were arriving uh, and saying, no, well, we've been told we don't need to take this person to hospital, you need to care for them. And and we we were very active in discouraging that, and we we every case that came to us, we managed to get them into hospital, and we reversed any DNRs that were put into place. Every human being, every citizen of this country, has the right to the NHS. So it doesn't matter, uh, you know, what the condition is. The NHS was there to look after people. It wasn't being overwhelmed. It had capacity. What we were expecting was for the care homes without training. Not all care homes have got nurses because only nursing homes have nurses on duty. Residential care homes don't have them. Our staff are highly skilled, highly skilled in what they do, but they do not have the training to look after somebody who might need a ventilator, Absolutely. Mm. who was having problems breathing. We do not have that and we don't have the equipment. Mm. So those people did need to go into hospitals. 
and I think that's what you know. That's where we had we had such a battle going on, um, trying to to get. We were fighting for the rights of our residents. There are some residents who will come into services and say, "I don't want to go to hospital." You know, whatever happens to me, please, I don't want to go to hospital. And they may have been residents in our care homes who were saying, please don't take me to hospital because they would much rather have remained in the service. And and, and that we have to respect that. And we have, you know, we have um, a paperwork that actually tells us. We ask that question when people come in, you know, when would you like to go to hospital and when do you not want to go to hospital? And we have it all recorded. And if somebody says, I want to be sent to hospital they have the right to go to a hospital. Mm. How are all your staff doing now? Well, I think what we're hearing quite a lot is there's, there is a huge amount of um, exhaustion. Um, the, the, the fear has turned into um, uh, the fear of a second wave. People are very, very worried what would happen if it all, you know, if they've got to go through the whole thing again. Um, there's, I, I think, you know, there's depression, there's people are fearful for themselves, but they're also fearful for the people that they're care, caring for. Yeah. And I think they're also quite devastated by the comments that are being made about this could have been their fault. Of course. Uh, and I don't know that anybody can understand the damage that has done um, to these people who've committed. Um, themselves to looking after the vulnerable people that were in their care uh, and, and, and many cases the expense of their own family life where they've made the decision to to, to not because they would be putting their own families at risk or staying in care uh, in, in the homes themselves um, in the the, the um, owners of these care services are absolutely shattered because they are now trying to balance um, the economies because that you know they're looking at their um, bottom line they've had to up their borrowings because the the cost of PPE was so much we've had providers telling us um, you know we had one provider very early on saying they'd just spent eight and a half thousand pounds trying to access PPE which would last them one week because they had three people with COVID in their service mm. Um, uh, the mixed messages about whether that people wore masks, didn't wear masks, you know, what, what they had to, all of that sort of stuff. We, we had to make all the arrangements to make sure that our staff were safe. And so were the rest of our residents. Yes, yes. What would you say to Boris Johnson if he came in the room now? What would you want to say to him? Well, I think I'd like to ask him to sit down and have a conversation with, with actual social care providers and to understand the challenges that we have faced and not just hear them third hand from advisors. I think that that might give him a, a clear picture uh, of what we've been through and also to work with us to make sure that social care is never felt, uh, never left to feel abandoned again. Yeah. Because that's where we were. So, you know, we have to learn from this. And I would ask, I would ask the Prime Minister to actually think about how we can make this work in a way that is going to safeguard the people that we look after, but also the workforce and recognise them as he does every single time he opens his mouth. He talks about the NHS and and how much he values it and i think we'd like to have 
some of that and it just needs to be reformed it needs to be funded properly so that we can not keep having this debate which is really challenging for all of us Madra Ahmed thank you Madra Ahmed OBE chair of the National Care Association Well, now it's time for the latest world news relating to corona, dated the 21st of July, as we're recording. Well, most importantly, a coronavirus vaccine developed by the University of Oxford appears safe and triggers an immune response. Trials involving more than 1,000 people showed the injection led to them making antibodies and T-cells that can fight coronavirus. The findings are hugely promising, but it's still too soon to know if this is enough to offer protection. And larger trials are underway. The vaccine is made from a genetically engineered virus that causes the common cold in chimpanzees. It's been heavily modified, first so it cannot cause infections in people, and also to make it look more like coronavirus. Scientists did this by transferring the genetic instructions for the coronavirus spike protein, the crucial tool it uses to invade our cells, to the vaccine they were developing. This means the vaccine resembles the coronavirus and the immune system can learn how to attack it. The UK has already ordered 100 million doses of the vaccine. There could be more than 3,500 avoidable cancer deaths in England in the next five years as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. According to The Lancet, the virus had disrupted services and some people had avoided healthcare. Early diagnosis and treatment can save lives and anyone who suspects they may have cancer should seek help. During lockdown, some cancer services were scaled back or delayed, although people were still encouraged to have essential or urgent care. UK-wide screening programmes to detect early signs of bowel, breast and cervical cancer in people with no symptoms are now trying to catch up with a backlog of appointments. And for the latest stats, uh, confirmed cases, 295,000 with 45,318 deaths. Worldwide, it's 14.7 million confirmed, with 610,000 deaths. Recovery rate to date is 8.29 million. And finally, the prospect of a summer holiday abroad is on the cards again after the UK government eased quarantine rules. People returning to the UK from certain countries do not need to self-isolate. Spain, including the Balearic Islands and the Canaries, is the most popular destination for Britons on their summer holidays, and 400,000 people from the UK own second homes in the country. It has had one of the strictest lockdowns in Europe, recording 28,355 coronavirus deaths up to the end of June. But it has now entered the new normal phase, and its borders have been reopened to tourists. And the full list of countries you can travel to is available by searching for www.gov.uk forward slash coronavirus. And that's the news. Well, that's it for this edition. If you want to email us about anything at all, uh, the address is coronachronicleshow at gmail.com. Until next week, this is Nick Randall saying take care and look after yourselves. Goodbye. Goodbye.